0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Snack Break Podcast. I'm your host, John Schaefer. And on this podcast, I interview physical therapists, fitness professionals, and health and wellness experts. Today, we're going to be talking about something near and dear to my heart, um, and that's the idea of overcomplicating treatment and overcomplicating things in clinic. So I want to highlight five different things that I've learned, both through residency training, as well as my strength and conditioning internship Um, Both have comprised like over 500 hours of direct and indirect mentorship, something I'm extremely grateful for. Um, And I just want to streamline some of these big concepts because I feel like they really have shifted how I think about how I practice as well as decreasing like anxiety and confusion in clinic when you might not know what to do with a patient who's a little bit more complex. So having these strategies in place, I think can do tremendous wonders in terms of again just reducing overall anxiety around practice and giving you a ton more confidence in how to approach different situations so a little bit of background I'm currently in an orthopedic residency um, I've been in this program since about August and the population I serve is largely underserved uninsured and a lot of them are either spanish-speaking or multi multicultural so it's a lot of people with very different things going on from cultures that I'm a little bit less familiar with. So, when I first started the program, I was extremely overwhelmed, both just in terms of like patient complexity, barriers these individuals um, face to treatment. I'd never even considered like transportation to getting to the clinic. Uh, a lot of these folks are driving, you know, 45 minutes, an hour and a half. Um, And a lot of them don't have a great understanding of what physical therapy is or how it can help them. And a lot of them are just super complex in terms of uh, the health conditions themselves. A lot of times I'll be chart reviewing and I'll see like 13, 14, 15 different conditions going on. It's like, okay, where do I fit into the picture? Um, and initially kind of during the first couple of weeks, I was thinking to myself at times, like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, should I be doing this? Do I have the tools necessary to really help these people? So this was extremely overwhelming and I wasn't really sure, you know, if I was cut out to even be in the role that I was. So through a lot of the different mentorship I've had so far, I've developed some different strategies for, you know, how to become a lot more comfortable in these situations, working with, Patients you're less familiar with, um, cultures you're less familiar with, and conditions you're less familiar with. And so I'm going to break down each of these five different principles that I feel like have, again, gotten me to a point where right now I feel like I can treat um, just about anyone who walks through the door and have confidence that you know I'm going to be safe with them and I'm going to progress them towards their goals. So I think the number one thing that I want to hit on is just realizing it's okay to not have all the answers on day one. I think that one of the tendencies clinicians have, and I'm definitely guilty of this too, is just to want to be super specific with like exact tissue that's involved or specific mechanical um, deficit or injury that a patient might be experiencing. Because a lot of times that's what when patients come to you, they want that answer. They want to know, okay, what's wrong with me Um, in a very specific manner. But I think it's important to take a step back and realize that it's not always necessary or beneficial to know the exact tissue involved, especially with like chronic pain patients because oftentimes we'll talk about this later, but you can't find, you know, a specific cause. So, how do we bridge that gap then? Like what sorts of tools should we be using and how do we go about approaching these more complex patients? Well, one way to address this is just getting really good at using classification systems. I think the big eye-opener for me was one of my mentors pulled me aside um, as I was overthinking, like trying to look for a specific tissue in the shoulder. She just said, go back to your shoulder classification for adhesive capsulitis and think, okay, is the joint moving too much? Is it moving not enough? Or is there a muscle power deficit? So if you think about just those three categories, like that's not so bad anymore, is it? And then just finding ways... To explain that to the patient, um, that, okay, this is what um, this is what's going on here. Your shoulder's moving in this way. This is why. And this is a tissue that might be a little bit irritated. Not necessarily having to get super, super specific or bring out a model of the shoulder telling him, okay, this exact spot is why you're having pain, because that's not necessarily super beneficial. Um, obviously... If you're dealing with a post-op patient who just had like a labor repair or had a specific rotator cuff muscle repaired, then it's gonna be a little bit more important that you're familiar with the specific tissue involved so you can progress the patient as best as possible, protecting that tissue that's healing uh, while strengthening surrounding areas. So don't get me wrong, tissue specificity has its time and place, but don't get so wrapped up with every single new eval that you have to find Um, the offending tissue the next thing I want to talk about is the what I'm going to call the over testing trap Um, and again I found myself here as well and that's why I want to share it and that's why I'm so passionate about passing it along is because I feel like it was it has been limiting me or has limited me in the past and I think that you know coming out of school we learn so many different tests we're learning different ways to take measurements um a special test to roll in and out. And anyone who comes out of, you know, six, seven years of school is going to want to use everything that they've learned. Um, and oftentimes we want to test everything and anything to try and come up with the diagnosis that makes sense to you. So it's easy. Um, it's easy to want to try and utilize that skill set. And I totally relate and understand. However, in the case of having like a 30 to 45 minute eval especially if you want to get your documentation done um, and maintain a certain level of sanity it's just not realistic to test absolutely everything and i think that that's okay to recognize is that you don't have to test everything this kind of goes back to the first suggestion i had um and that's that you don't have to um and that's that you don't have to have all the answers in day one it's okay to uh, have your treatment be this ongoing process of discovery and making changes as you go. Um, So don't put that pressure on yourself to get all the answers day one. Test what's absolutely essential and then move forward. And I think a big way to help improve this is focusing on using um, your subjective examination. So what the patient has to say using that to drive your objective measurements so realistically you should know what you want to test by the end of your subjective um, in terms of like functional outcomes what special tests you want to use um, to differentiate what the differentials you have in your mind are and then you know how you're going to test to decide what the patient's biggest deficits are so if you can kind of game plan or be thinking ahead in your mind okay this is like the bare minimum this is what i need to look at to either confirm or refute what I'm thinking, then it's easy. It's easy to kind of think, okay, I, maybe I don't need to test. Uh, maybe I don't need to test glute strength or this or that. Um, maybe I can save that for later down the line. So I would just kind of challenge you to think about like what's the, what's the need to know information day one versus, okay, this is nice to know, but it doesn't necessarily affect what I'm doing for treatment day one. Um, I guess an example I can think of when this kind of became apparent, apparent for me was a patient walked in and they had pretty clearly cervical radiculopathy. So they tested positive for four out of four Wainer's cluster and they're a little bit more irritable. So I did all my, all my special tests for the cluster to kind of identify that this is what I thought was going on. Um, and other things I was thinking about was testing like cervical segmental mobility, um, deep neck flexor endurance. And these are all just thoughts going through my head. And I was kind of sharing this with my mentor at the time. And she was just like, okay, let's back up a little bit. You already know what's going on. Um, yeah, that other information, it could be helpful, but is it going to change what you're going to do today? No, probably not. So let's save some of that other stuff for the follow-up. Um, you've already done you know, a couple provocative tests too. So maybe Since they are a little bit more irritable, this could just add to it if you're doing some of these other motions. So back off, you found some things that work. Um, It's okay to come back to it and add additional testing later on. And then once we actually get into thinking about return patients, um, this next piece of advice I think is extremely beneficial. And this is something I learned through my time at Champion. Um, and it was emphasized that the movement pattern should guide the exercise rather than just picking random exercises that you know you know, work well for a specific condition or have seen used for a specific condition in the past. And this is where I think um, the higher level exercise prescription really comes into place when you are thinking through the specific movement patterns. Um, so really we shouldn't be thinking that, oh this is a really good exercise for x y z condition during the evaluation instead you can kind of think through like what are the major movement patterns i'll break them down here in a minute Um, but where is the patient lacking where are they hoping to improve and then how to integrate these different movement patterns into the patient's life because oftentimes we as individuals will like move through these patterns in our day-to-day life we don't we don't really move in isolation but at the same time, I'll say this again, like there is a time and a place for it. Um, so if you are trying to strengthen a specific muscle, then working in isolation can be a lot, can be beneficial as well. Um, and especially like once you get in more unloaded positions and things like that, then I still believe that, you know, there's a time and a place for specific exercises and you can recognize, okay, this like typically works well um, for patients who present this way. I'm just trying to give you uh, like different tools, a different framework to get into like some of this higher level thinking um, when it comes to exercise prescription. Uh, so instead of going with that approach that like, oh, I know this is great for like OA, um, instead here are like, here are some different tools you can use, okay. So it's important to first note what the five major movements are, and that's gonna be the squat, the hinge, the push, pull, um, lunge and squat pattern. Okay, and then there's also you can include core too, so that would be six. And then once you have these movements, they can be broken down either further, even further into unilateral movements, bilateral movements, and then moving even further, you can start to break down into okay, is the position like elevated? Is it can be performed at a deficit? Um, are there going to be other modifications for range of motion, modifications for intensity or weight? And then you can go further and look at like tempo. So um, how long is the tissue under tension for? So a good example would be, um, let's see here, maybe like a goblet squat. You could do a tempo where you're, go- where you're going um, one second down, pause at the bottom, and one second on the way up. Or you can further break that down to doing like a three second descent, um, hold at the bottom, and then come up for one second. So that would be when you think about like how you work with tempo, that just changes how long uh, the tissues are under tension for. So depending on what the patient's pain tolerance is and where they're at, you can adjust accordingly to make the exercise easier or more difficult. Um, and if you know if you know what pattern is limited, so for instance, we'll go into another example here. Um, if they're having a lot of issues with like pulling with a single arm, you can start to build out your movement from there. Um, So then you can start thinking, okay, like what's a single arm pulling exercise? Maybe it's a kneeling cable row. Maybe it's bent over dumbbell row. Um, And the opportunities are endless there compared to thinking like, okay, this patient maybe has shoulder pain. I know that TheraBand rows um, can help with like shoulder and postural strength, uh, which is true, but I mean force yourself to think a little bit deeper be more specific in what actual movements limited and why and then this approach i think really makes progressions and regressions a lot easier too because then you can kind of go through the categories and think okay how can i make this a little bit more challenging Uh, maybe i've been doing double leg let's switch to single leg um and then from there there, you can increase the intensity. You can increase the range, and you can also regress by going the opposite direction. But like knowing what those major movement patterns are, how you can make them easier or more difficult, and then kind of sliding in different exercises that fit that pattern as appropriate, uh, I think is extremely beneficial. So. And again, this is not something that, this is not something that I was doing at all before I had this internship and before I had like mentoring on how to actually go through this process. Before it was like, okay, I I mean, usually you go from this exercise to this exercise. Um, But again, I, I just didn't have like a good systematic way to move through it. So I felt like oftentimes I was just trying to learn as many exercises as I could rather than taking a step back and trying to learn these different patterns and then from there realizing that you can kind of plug in as you go. So I thought that that's kind of a cool system um, and that's a way that you can implement it. So a lot of credit towards um, all the strength condition coaches at Champion because that was really helpful. Um, next up, I want to talk about treating chronic pain. So this is, again, I think one of the cornerstones of something that a new clinician or experienced clinician needs to be able to do and do well. And originally, when I was first exposed to chronic pain patients, like in a in a more consistent sense, like I'd say over 75% of the patients I treat now all experience chronic pain. So coming into this, I mean, it was an uphill battle for a little while and something that I kind of dreaded. Um, and that can definitely be the case if you don't have the tools or framework to approach this demographic can cater to their needs. Um, and I'll, I think it'll probably be easiest to just go right into an example here. So let's think about a patient with low back pain. So they come to you, this has been ongoing for a while. They've likely been to a lot of doctors. They can't find the exact cause of, you know, quote unquote, what's wrong with them. Or maybe they believe that surgery is the only option. Um, you know, we'll get a lot of patients that come in. And they'll think that, okay, I need to complete my eight visits of PT, just kind of check that box. And then I'll be able to either get my injection or go to surgery. And that can be frustrating from your perspective. Like you're looking at this patient, you're thinking, okay, they don't think I can help them. Now I'm questioning if I can help them. Um, Like what's, what is my role in all of this? And when I originally encountered these patients, I would, I would get so frustrated and like question myself in the same line of thinking, like, can I really help this patient out? What can I do? But since then, I think I've learned a couple different strategies or things to do when I encounter situations like this, um, or even just working with patients with chronic pain. So with the we'll go back to the example of low back pain. So addressing low back pain via this more biopsychosocial model, uh, addressing things like work, stress, home life, perception of their symptoms can go a really long way, especially during the evaluation. They likely haven't had someone before ask them some of these questions, asking them, okay, what role is stress playing in your life? Do you feel like you have the tools to manage those stressors? Um, How does your pain when you're stressed, does that change at all? diving a little bit deeper and acknowledging that yes, stress plays a role in how we experience pain. And I think through that line of questioning, you start to build rapport and you start to gain a better understanding of, you know, where's the patient coming from? What does their life look like? How is their back pain changing their life? Um, And the patients will really, really appreciate you going that extra step. To address like other factors, because I've heard time and time again that you know something's wrong with my back. X structure is not where it's supposed to be. Your X-rays they're awful, or things like that. Those, that type of that type of verbiage and framing will stick with patients to the point where they think that yeah something is wrong with me, and I, it's not going to get better until um, I have surgery or something like that. So empowering your patients is going to be super important. And then just letting them know that, you know, dealing with this chronic condition is going to be an ongoing journey. Um, in the, we'll go back to the case of low back pain because I think it's helpful. Uh, there's been studies to show that 80% of patients will have recurring episodes of low back pain. And that's, it's important to note that that's not necessarily a failure on your end, um, In these situations, what I've done more recently, which which has been super helpful, is that after that first flare-up, discuss with your patient like a flare-up plan to have ready to go. Um, And this flare-up plan will include about three exercises um, that you know will help decrease symptoms in your patient's low back. In this instance, so these are exercises that have worked in clinic. Um, You're seeing right in front of you that yes. And you're seeing that yes, when the patient does do these exercises right in front of you, they tell you these feel really good. These are helping my symptoms. Um, and so, if a patient has, if a patient has like extension-based back pain, then you can do something like bringing your knees to chest, um, doing supine lower trunk rotations. Um, and if they have. They're having symptoms down their leg maybe you incorporate some kind of like a sciatic nerve glide and supine and those would be the three exercises that you give your patient and then you write them down and just tell the patient that hey you're gonna have flare-ups it's gonna occur from time to time i want you to know what to do when you get in these situations before maybe you were resting all the time or felt like you had to go straight to bed for the rest of the day but now that you have you know these three exercises you've got your flare-up plan Let's put you in a situation where you do a few exercises, maybe you sit down for a little while, and then you're able to go on with your day. This empowers the patients like you would not believe. Instead of coming in defeated during sessions where they are experiencing pain between the last time you saw them, they'll come in saying things like, yeah, you know, I I did experience uh, an increase in pain over the weekend, But I felt like, you know, I was able to do my three exercises and the pain decreased and I was able to move on with my day. So instead of coming in defeated, they're going to be happy that they had the tools to utilize other than maybe taking medication immediately or going straight to bed rest. Because ultimately, what we want to be able to do is empower our patients to a level where they feel like they're more in control of their health and don't have to rely on either medication or waiting until they can get surgery and things like that. So just communicating with the patient, the process, the journey that is gonna be dealing with chronic pain um, and recognizing that there are tools and solutions to help limit the effects. Um, And if you use those approaches, I firmly believe that working with this chronic pain demographic can get a lot more enjoyable. Um, One other thing I guess I do wanna add on to this is if you are dealing with a patient who's in a lot of pain, try your best not to constantly be asking them about their symptoms throughout the session um you know get get a feeler for how they're doing for the day and then tell them to bring up you know if anything starts to bother them but if you're asking them 10 15 times throughout a session hey how's this feel does this hurt does this hurt does this hurt i mean it's going to be a it's going to be a point where they get to like everything everything hurts um but this feels okay and I feel like I've, I've definitely dealt with patients where initially I was kind of asking them over and over again. Um, and I just, it, it comes off as very, it's almost annoying to some people. So kind of set, set the baseline expectations um, for how you're going to communicate with them early on by saying things like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let just let you keep going unless you bring to my attention that you know, something's really bothering you or you want to stop or do something different. So that way you're not constantly having them uh, focus on their pain during the entire session when maybe um, that can be spent more fruitful time um, working through different movements and trying to get a little bit stronger. The last thing that I want to cover today um, in terms of trying not to overcomplicate things, uh, the, biggest, the biggest piece, um, none of these other tips will work unless you have this last piece. And that's just this idea of over-communicating, being willing to adjust, and not being afraid to ask for help. So at the end of the day, what I've learned is it really does not matter if you have all the answers or have all the knowledge um, because you're never going to know it all. You just aren't. There's always going to be something else to learn. But what your patients care about most is that they're feeling seen, they're feeling heard, and that you're making this continuous effort to address their concerns and find different ways to empower them. Obviously it's going to depend on the patient, but not everyone, not everyone needs answers to, okay, I'm doing this exercise because this works, this muscle or is going to help protect this tendon or X, Y, Z with some super specific explanation. Um, they just want someone who's going to communicate with them, be very real about the situation. Um, and, be willing to try and answer their questions or if they can't answer their questions initially um, tell them that you know by the next session i'm going to talk to this person and get a little bit more information about what's going on so i can better serve you so that's going to go a lot further than um than trying to answer every patient's question right away with maybe an answer that you're not super confident on they're gonna appreciate you getting that second opinion if you know that's in fact what you need to do. And they'll be pretty responsive to that too, is what I've noticed in my experience. I wanted to you know f- go a little bit further into that concept um, with an excerpt from a book that a coworker of mine directed me to. The book's called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and this, this excerpt's gonna talk a little bit uh, about how much the patient encounter matters Um, So much so that really if you can get someone to like you, the rest of your time working with them is going to be an absolute piece of cake. So I'm going to read the excerpt here and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Recently, the medical researcher Wendy Levinson recorded hundreds of conversations between a group of physicians and their patients. Roughly half of the doctors had never been sued. The other half had been sued at least twice and Levinson found that just on the basis of those conversations, she could find clear differences between the two groups. The surgeons who had never been sued spent more than three minutes longer with each patient than those who had been sued did. 18.3 minutes versus 15 minutes. They were more likely to make orienting comments, such as, first I'll examine you, and then we'll talk about the problem, or I'll leave time for your questions at the end which helps patients get a sense of what the visit is supposed to accomplish and when they ought to ask questions. They were more likely to engage in active listening, saying things such as, go on, tell me more about that. And they were far more likely to laugh and be funny during the visit. Interestingly, there was no difference in the amount or quality of information they gave their patients. They didn't provide more details about the medication or the patient's condition. The difference was entirely in how they talk to their patients. So I just thought that was super interesting. Like how you're communicating with your patients is gonna be much more important than very specific information you're giving them. As long as you're giving them the baseline education, how you come across with your patients and how you interact with them is so important. So not only will this approach help you avoid getting sued, it's also gonna allow you to make a lot more progress um, more quickly especially with patient buy-in if you're laughing if you're connecting with these patients and they like you they're gonna feel much greater commitment to the overall process um, what you're telling them they need helping them find you know what they need to recover in terms of agp and that's going to lead to better outcomes in the end too so hopefully these tips were helpful and can provide a little bit of insight into actionable ways to improve your practice and even more so just ease your mind when working with complex patients. Go back to the basics. Don't overcomplicate things. Review those classification systems because they will make your life easier. And then just focus on constantly trying to become a better communicator and finding better ways to understand your patient, what their goals are, what their hopes and dreams are beyond PT. And if you can help provide guidance on how they can get there, you're going to make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. All right, that's all I have for you on today's episode. Hopefully this was helpful and hopefully provided a little bit of value to you and how you're going to continue to practice. As always, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. Um, If you know someone who would benefit from this episode, feel free to share. And always feel free to reach out or connect with me on Instagram. Um, Have a fantastic rest of your week and we'll see you on the next one.